Welcome to the Burning Archive, the podcast where the past is never dead, the past is not even past, and where by thinking about the past, we try to live better in the present. In this episode of the Burning Archive, I'm talking about doom, disaster and decay full-on pessimism, but maybe not. And it's not just any doom, disaster or decay, but political decay and how it is discussed in Neil Ferguson's recent book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. So the question for today's podcast is... How well do our political institutions cope with huge disasters such as the coronavirus pandemic? And does the response to the pandemic or or other examples of disaster suggest that our political institutions are in decay? Which is one of the big themes of the podcast, political decay. And I want to approach this question in part by looking at the historian Neil Ferguson's recent book about doom, the politics of catastrophe, which is a history of catastrophes and responses to disasters with a particular focus on the recent coronavirus pandemic and how it compares to to other major pandemics in history and other catastrophic events. And in some ways, Neil Ferguson asked the question whether the worst disease exposed by the pandemic is not coronavirus itself, but the chronic disease and decay of our political institutions, including he even points the finger a little bit, not so much at the leaders of governments, but at the public health bureaucracy and in general, middle level bureaucracies. Uh, I am Jeff Rich. I am a writer, historian and a very minor government official. And let me add, especially for this uh, podcast, uh, since we are talking about political topics, that my podcast is entirely separate from my official duties and do not reflect the views of the organisations that I work for or indeed even comment on the direct experiences of working on those organisations. This podcast is quite separate from my official role and is very much just following my curiosity about history and culture and how they are unfolding in the real world today. So before we get into the main uh, material of the podcast, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, shout out to the people who've left reviews and positive ratings for the podcast. I really appreciate it. And to listeners, including listeners in Russia and America, very much welcome. I hope the strange Southern Australian accent is not too uh, odd for you. And please shout out to your friends and encourage others to listen. You can also read more of my writings at The Burning Archive. where I uh, write a blog on various topics. Indeed, I think just uh, yesterday I posted an article on the political philosopher Leo Strauss and his 
his ideas about writing between the lines. So feel free to check that out. So doom, disaster and decay. So this is the first of a second trilogy of three uh, episodes of the podcast on my four themes. And briefly, just to recap, especially for new listeners, those four themes are political decay, which we're talking about today, imperial rivalry, which the last three episodes of the podcast were about, and social fragmentation and cultural decay. Uh, and my plan at this point is to do a little trilogy on each of those four themes and then see how the podcast evolves from there. Let me just add that, uh, of course, I am quite politically neutral and none of these comments are in any way commentary on current political events and do not reflect, uh, merely reflect my, my personal views. So what is the meaning of this theme of political decay? Broadly, it means that we quality of political institutions, the quality of government, if you like, seems to be getting worse and is less able to cope with the challenges that presented to it and that some of the fundamental dimensions of those institutions and the culture that underlies them is not as not as robust as it used to be of course i don't want to be talking about the good old days and and vague nostalgia about some previous regime or leader who who had some miraculous qualities of uh, political leadership everyone all political leaders or governments are, are flawed i guess but I do believe that uh, over the last 30, 40 years, there has been a significant decay in political institutions in our modern liberal democratic uh, societies, and that that's evident in a number of ways, which we'll sort of get to over time in the podcast. It doesn't mean we're not better off. I mean, in many ways, we are better off in the whole Steven Pinker, Hans Rosling theme eh, that for, for good or ill, despite a lot of gnashing of teeth, our, our world does seem to be getting better. We're living longer, we're better educated. Well, we have more formal years of education. We're wealthier, less prone to sickness. But there is this nagging doubt about how well our doc democracies are performing. Now, Government, of course, is a people business and perfection is not possible. So these are all relative judgments and qualitative judgments. But I think I'm not just being a grumpy old man when I say that things seem to be getting worse. And the interesting thing, I guess, the reason I wanted to start off this theme with Neil Ferguson's book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, is because he provides a very tangible comparison that maybe looks at how, how political leaders uh, have not responded as well to a very similar challenge in the 2020 pandemic to one that was faced in earlier times. And this is consistent with the theme, I guess, of one of his earlier books, Degeneration, Why Institutions Decay, which we may well get into at another time. Not that we constantly want to talk about Neil Ferguson, but he, is, he does throw up a lot of interesting ideas. 
So Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, only came out a week or two ago. And if you, you can read the book, obviously, but you can also catch Neil Ferguson talking about it on on multiple podcasts including the hoover institution podcast good fellows and and i think there's a few youtube type interviews with him as well so if you prefer to uh, absorb it that way you absolutely can but the comparison that he makes in that book is between the 1957 influencer pandemic and the 2020 pandemic and it turns out that the 2020 coronavirus pandemic isn't really a once in a century unprecedented event um, the way some people say it's certainly nothing like the 1918 spanish flu pandemic which killed somewhere between 50 and 100 million people around the world in a population that was much smaller and that was still sort of dealing with a world war it's much closer to the 1957 flu that affected uh, many countries around the world so the 1957 asian flu was epidemiologically quite similar to in terms of scale of impact uh, prevalence of disease and rates of infection and mortality etc etc to the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. And yet the response to the 1957 flu was dramatically different. In 1957, in America at least, the president is Dwight Eisenhower, who is a former general from the American army, I think, you know, one of the the major generals of the Second World War. I think he might have led the Normandy invasion of France to sort of expel Germany from France. And he, he subsequently became president. America is, you know, a newly ascendant empire. We're about a year or so after the Suez Crisis that leads to the, you know, the rapid collapse of the British uh, world influence and empire. A newly prosperous society but one which really has only just got penicillin and all sorts of uh, medicines. And yet its response to the pandemic appears to have been vastly more effective and less flummoxed than the response of many governments around the world in 2020. Apparently in 1957, the the, uh, American institutions were able quite quickly to develop a vaccine even. And there were not lockdowns, there were not many of the extreme, I guess, economic reactions that led to major impacts on on uh, income and economic activity and, and, and a general sort of, let's say, social panic, perhaps most symboli- best symbolised by the great toilet paper panics of 2020. And Neil Ferguson attributes at least part of this difference to the quality of government, of political institutions, of the competence of government. So he, he, he writes a further contrast after talking about, say, the difference in social attitudes and the entrepreneurial nature of the medical bureaucracy, I guess, in 1957, is that the competence a further contrast between 2020 and 1957 is that the competence of government would appear to have diminished even as its size has expanded in the past six decades. 
Now, there is a link here to some of our earlier episodes about imperial decay because Neil Ferguson makes clear that we need to think about when we look at natural responses to natural disasters or responses to public health disasters like uh, the coronavirus pandemic. It's often the nature of political, by which I mean broadly, you know, governmental public policy type decision making. It's often political decision making that creates the the disastrous social and economic consequences of a natural event as much as the natural event. And this is, for example, documented to some degree in Amyata Sen's work on famines, which which are not really about the weather or that sort of thing or or poor agricultural practices. It's partly about decision-making around prices and, and the distributions of food. Sen argues essentially that all famines are humanly made events. And in a way, Ferguson takes a similar approach to public health disasters or other catastrophes that they are uh, political disasters, not only in terms of the and they're political disasters, not just in a narrow sense of the decisions made by the leaders of government or the leaders of elected officials, uh, but a broader sense of poor decision-making, a, a poor functioning of the political system. And this is why it's so relevant to the theme of political decay, because political decay isn't so much about leader X or Y being not as good as they used to be or not as good as, you know, leader X or Y from another political party. It's really about the functioning of the overall institutions and culture of the political system. And if there is poor political decision-making, it can have a big impact. It plays into the theme of imperial rivalry and imperial decline. So Ferguson writes in Doom that, And I quote, empires are the most complex of all political units that humans have constructed, precisely because they seek to exert power over very large areas and diverse cultures. It is not surprising then to find that they exhibit many of the characteristics of other complex adaptive systems, including the tendency for apparent stability to give way quite suddenly to disorder. Neil Ferguson gives the example of both the Western Roman Empire and the Ming Dynasty in China, Western Roman Empire in you know roughly 300, 400 uh, AD and Ming Dynasty in around about 1600, I think, both of which transitioned from equipoise, so stable equilibrium, from equipoise to anarchy in little more than a decade and with devastating consequences. So Ferguson uh, summarises, of all the forms catastrophe can take, the death agony of an empire may be the most difficult to fathom precisely because it is the most complex. So I guess the question is, is the coronavirus pandemic part of the death agony of the American empire? 
So political decay matters a lot to us. If empires collapse, no one within that empire has a great time for a while. Death agonies are not exciting things to observe or to participate in. And if the systems by which our human social problems are governed become unstable, it can have devastating and sudden consequences. And this is what I worry about with signs of political decay everywhere. So what is my overall hypothesis or definition on political decay? So by political decay, I mean a weakening in the quality, competence, capability of governing institutions and political actors. My hypothesis is that over the last, let's say, 50 years, let's say from approximately 1970, just to take a an approximate date, mid, let's say the 1970s, early 1980s perhaps, uh, but certainly from the 1970s, there has been a paradoxical decline in the capability of and quality of our political institutions at the same time as there's been a growing professionalisation of those political institutions. We have more and more political marketing spin and professional political advisors and less and less high-quality government. And an example of this, which is a little bit detached from my immediate circumstances working in one of the Australian governments, is that is well, let's say the 2020 American election. In 1957, America faced... A, a mild influenza pandemic led by a person who had, had led that country through World War II and conducted military campaigns and had had decades of experience dealing with those sorts of situations. What do we have? What do we see in 2020? We see a choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And we see the American political system hyperactivated in terms of its news media coverage and yet barely able to organise a coherent election count, credibly. Uh, I understand there are, is it 12,000 or 1,200, uh, 1,200, maybe it's uh, whatever, but that sort of scale of number of organisations involved in the administration of a United States election. And the kind of people involved, the kind of skills they bring to bear, the kind of thinking they bring to bear to all the problems and dilemmas they face are just less and less capable. There are many other examples. But and my, my hypothesis is that there's little weakenings of the capabilities of more and more institutions say the the parliaments become a little bit less focused on deliberative assembly and open meaningful debate the political spin doctors become more and more cynical let's say about spreading messages 
the news media gets less and less focused on independent reporting and more and more focused on uh, presenting their celebrity journalists in the media the the bureaucracy becomes less and less merit-based and more and more well and less and less competent to do its job the associated professions related to politics the the lobby groups and the advocacy organizations become more and more focused on their issue and less and less focused on a generic public interest and all of these little wearing away of competence and capability and culture and institutions contribute to a disordered network of political institutions the kind of sudden transition from equipoise to anarchy that Neil Ferguson talks about and so that all these little deficits let's say or all these little examples of decay and underperformance add up to a much bigger and larger problem now I'm not just making up this idea of political decay this is actually one that I've drawn from the work of Francis Fukuyama. And in particular, in his two-volume Political Order and Political Decay, which is sort of like a global history of political institutions that is set against a maybe an anthropological theory, I guess, of the key behaviours in politics key, key uh, conditions of how politics work in human society. And it, it describes, you know, the early Chinese bureau- development of bureaucracy. It goes through uh, many eras. And its second volume is largely related to, I guess, the 19th and 20th century worlds. Now, Francis Fukuyama is, to some degree, a very famous American intellectual who is most famous for the hypothesis that, a frequently misunderstood hypothesis, that the end of the Cold War, uh, 1989, marked the end of history. So he wrote a, a book, originally an essay, called the, the End of History and the Last Man, it is a book that's frequently misunderstood as hypothesizing that history had come to an end with liberal democracy. And to some degree, he does sort of suggest that in that he argues that the institutions of contemporary liberal democracy best satisfy the human drive for universal recognition. But he also, within that, also asked the question of whether there was not, and if I just quote from the start of the book here, not a side of the human personality that deliberately seeks out struggle, danger, risk and daring. And will not this side, and will this side not remain unfulfilled by the peace and prosperity of contemporary liberal democracy and just as a bit of a historical curiosity back in 1989 
the Fukuyama's book actually refers to none other than Donald Trump in an extraordinary piece of uh, prophecy, perhaps. He refers to Donald Trump. I'm just getting the reference here in the book here on page 328. And he says, let me just read this little passage. Is it, it is reasonable to wonder whether all people will believe that the kinds of struggles and sacrifices possible in a self-satisfied and prosperous liberal democracy are sufficient to call forth what is highest in man. For are there not reservoirs of idealism that cannot be exhausted, indeed, that are not even touched, if one becomes a developer like Donald Trump, or a mountain climber like Reinhold Meissner, or a politician like George Bush? Difficult as it is in many ways to be these individuals, and for all the recognition they receive their lives are not the most difficult and the causes they serve are not the most serious or the most just and as long as they are not the horizon of human possibilities that they define will not be ultimately satisfying for the most thymotic natures now thymotic natures refers to i guess the drive for honor and pride so he kind of speculates uh, a little bit further it's not terribly well revealed by that passage there that you know will there be people who like Donald Trump who will sort of climb to the top of political institutions to demonstrate their honor and prestige to the world so that's a little bit of a <laughs> aside I guess but a, a curious aside now Francis Fukuyama has endured I guess a couple of decades of mockery for his idea of the end of history and the book Political Order and Political Decay is to some degree a response and a recanting of some of those things. It's a much less optimistic portrait of the character of liberal democratic institutions. And in particular, he has focused a lot in recent years around the idea of political decay. And here is a short clip of Fukuyama the really hard part is getting to actually a modern state that can deliver services, provide security, and is regarded as uh, legitimate. And that's really the overweening failure, I think, in both of those places in the, in the area where we didn't really understand how to do things. Uh, I'll get to the case of developed democracies because I think that uh, there's also a big problem there, beginning with uh, my own country, the United States. So there's no question that we've got you know, a state and rule of law and... Um, uh, and democratic accountability, but I would say that we are subject to uh, something I have described as political uh, decay, uh, because an impersonal government that is well-run uh, and, and effective is a vulnerable thing, uh, because elites in the country are constantly um, trying to recapture it and, and, and repatrimonialize it. And furthermore, I think countries are subject to institutional rigidity, that we create a set of institutions for a certain set of circumstances, and then when the circumstances change, we don't adapt mentally, we don't rebuild the institutions, and as a result, we're stuck with things that are quite uh, ineffective. And I think that's really what's happened uh, in the United States. So if I just quote from his book, Fukuyama says, political institutions develop over time. 
but they are also universally subject to political decay. This problem is not solved once a society becomes rich and democratic. Indeed, democracy itself can be the source of decay. And so Fukuyama presents this much more dynamic picture, I guess, of history, where uh, institutions develop, but there are these other forces that are, you know, working against the the bro- broader aspirations of the system. Indeed, de- decay, political decay, comes from the inability of institutions to adapt to changing circumstances, specifically the rise of new social groups and their political demands. So, let's say a a uh, you know, the sort of uh, European aristocratic elite uh, at, the, um, at the time of World War I is not really capable of uh, accommodating properly the demands of, of the more prosperous working class and other social groups that are emerging at the start of the 19th century. And, but yet they maintain their grand illusions about their their society um, but underneath it all the decay is happening and then the disaster of world war one happens in which a lot of those aristocratic officers make disastrous inept decisions devastating consequences for people when we talk about institutions, uh, they can be understood as organisations, I guess, but also as stable, recurring patterns of behaviour. So the institutions of uh, the justice system, the institutions of law and order, the institutions, some people even describing the family as an institution, the institutions of, of parliament and the, all the conventions around parliament, they're examples of institutions. And what uh, Fukuyama argues is that, and if I just quote here, we are instinctively, as in humans, are instinctively conformist and look around at our fellows for guidelines to our own behaviour. So institutions are sort of made and reinforced by our desire to be like other people, to follow the herd, let's say, to be part of a group or a tribe and to, you know, when in Rome, be like the Romans. And this marriage of affirming instinct with adaptive institutions is a good thing because it makes for successful social cooperation. When in Rome, do as the Romans, and then you get all the benefits of what the Romans do. And successful social cooperation is essentially what the task of government is. And without that that virtuous cycle between an adaptive institution that's looking around at its environment and changing appropriately in response, and people feeling that the that being part of doing as other people do is a positive and constructive thing for them but also for others without that 
positive reinforcement working well, social cooperation, the kind of challenges you face when you have to manage a pandemic or a war or any other major challenge that government or political institutions face, that tends to break down and that's the risk of political decay. Now, Fukuyama also argues that political decay comes from four real sources. Or, or that there's four, well, no, three, three real uh, sources. One is a sort of a misfit of mental models. So the ideas of the, let's say, go back to the example of the aristocratic elite of World War One, and there's a great film by the French director Jean Renoir called La Grande Illusion, which is almost like the perfect symbol of this. It, it's, it's a portrait of the world of the aristocratic French or German uh, officers of World War One and how they are sort of maintaining the sort of world of the 19th century aristocracy amongst the slaughterhouse of the trenches in World War One, and that there is just this clash of mental models between the kind of society they think they're governing and the reality of what is uh, out in front of them and that the people that they are governing are facing. So that's number one source of decay, misfit of uh, mental, mental models. And I think we can probably say there might be a bit of that going on as more and more the world becomes com- perplexing to to us and it's not behaving the way uh, we've grown accustomed to, to expect. So the second sort of cause is the behaviour of elites and insiders and specifically the phenomenon of insider capture. So elites climb their way to the top of political institutions. They may have other interests involved and then they slowly turn those political institutions to uh, survive, to, to, to prosper and to um, keep their advantages enduring and forget the purpose, the broader mission and purpose of the institution. And then the third driver of political decay is one that Fukuyama describes as repatrimonialization, which is a, a move away from political institutions being based in objective, liberal, democratic principles of justice and turning them more and more to doing favours for the people who support us. Whether those favours are, are deeply corrupt, like, you know, say, you know, money for family and that sort of thing, or or softly corrupt, as in advantages for the people who support us, or more what you could call clientelistic, which is, you know, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, uh, you know, let's provide some money to this interest group or this service or that sort of thing, and they and their followers will support us as well. And these are all, these three uh, factors of a misfit of mental models, insider capture and repatrimonialization. they are all, I mean, I guess we can all see examples of that around us today without labouring the point, and they are, they are, I guess, cast as broad sociological 
patterns of behaviour that cross time and cross cross cultures. And democracy is only a fairly incomplete check on any of those drivers. And hence Fukuyama's more pessimistic view as an older man of uh, the prospects of for the end of history. Now, it should be said that political decay, and Fukuyama makes this point himself, is not the same as civilizational decline, just hearkening back to some of the discussion in some of the earlier episodes about how de- decline and fall stories can be cast as moral judgments. Political decay is, he's trying to describe in a more political science, sociological sort of way, is a, a factor that is driven by fundamental sources of behaviour clashing and, and um, against the kind of institutions that people have built up as defences of those, defences against those patterns of behaviour. And there's two particular processes that uh, Fukuyama focuses on here. One is called he calls kinship affiliation and one is called reciprocal altruism. Kinship affiliation is, well, looking after one's family or more uh, broadly understood, looking after one's mates, looking after people like us, looking after after people from our party, the, our supporters, however it goes. It's, it's, it's not, I guess something that is to be ashamed of in a way i mean it's just a very natural thing you know one looks at one's children and one wants the best for them so but it's a kind of human instinct let's say that needs to be controlled within a political institution because uh, taken to its natural extension that way you get family dynasties and monarchies, that sort of thing. And we know that even modern political institutions have family dynasties and soft-heartedness perhaps towards political children. Let's just think about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, for example. So it's a, a very strong tendency, but it's one that many political institutions have to put guardrails around to protect against political decay because if there's a strong feeling that the institution is run by the one family or one by, run by the one group or run by the same, the single set of ideas and no one from outside of that circle can have an influence on the society that drives discontent it drives conflict and it drives an undermining of legitimacy so that's process number one kinship affiliation process number two is reciprocal altruism so you scratch my back i scratch yours you do this for me i do this for you could also be described in in um, anthropological terms as gift exchange it's it is at the heart of so much that we do. I will make dinner for you and we will be friends or any number of similar kind of things. You know, you do, you 
shout me a drink this time and I'll shout you a drink next time. Reciprocal altruism is is just the thing that we do. We look up, we, we sort of want to have symmetry in our exchanges with uh, other people and we don't want to be used. We want to have a sense of, of being part of things. But then if you transplant that natural instinctive behavior into a political institution especially a complex institution like a liberal democracy you have a problem uh you can't just go around saying oh well because he recommended people vote for me let's give him this uh grant of money or you can't just say that guy helped me out early in my career and therefore i'm going to help him out now regardless of the merits of other people within the selection you know if say someone's going for a job regardless of the merits of other candidates for the job so reciprocal altruism again is this very natural human behavior that sits a little that that sort of drives political behavior to some degree because uh you know, it's about it's a people business. It's about making people feel that they're involved and connected and all that sort of thing. Thing, but within large, complex, formal, formally accountable, openly democratic, heavily scrutinised political institutions, there need to be all these guardrails around it and these these um, ways of preventing it undermining. Uh, a sense of fairness, a sense of efficiency, a sense of um, uh, being driven by the mission of the organisation, not the missions of the people within the organisation, all that sort of thing. So it's quite a complex picture that Fukuyama presents around political decay. It, it is like a, almost like this ecosystem where we have human natural human drives of social behavior kinship affiliation reciprocal altruism place within the the amongst the most complex forms of social cooperation that humans have devised i.e governments political institutions and the political institutions the social cooperation cannot work without those drives and yet unless there is a strong set of institutions and a strong culture that actually guides those drives in the correct way, uh, the institutions themselves get undermined. Now, all of that can sound a bit abstract, perhaps, complicated, but let's try to bring it back now to Neil Ferguson and Doom. So in Doom, Neil Ferguson uh, points out an awkward fact about the responses of different countries to the coronavirus pandemic. Taiwan and South Korea did exceptionally well with a strategy of contact tracing and isolation and um, empowering digital I guess monitoring of people um, and and also managing their borders uh, very effectively 
as well as being relatively small, uh, easily governed, effectively island states. South Korea is not an island, but it's the bottom of a peninsula against below a, uh, a hermit empire in North Korea. And those countries have done remarkably well uh, compared to the United States and England. I am outlining this argument here, but I, I do note as I am recording this on the 24th of May that regrettably Taiwan appears to have had a sudden spike in its its, its COVID cases uh, just really in the last week. So it seems to have moved to having 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 had sort of less than 25 cases per day a new confirmed cases per day for whatever since since the start of the the outbreak it has had a rapid climb to over 300 cases on the 22nd of may so that's quite sad and perhaps that it will shoot down um shoot down Neil Ferguson's argument it might just be about sheer you know physical facts and and biology rather than quality of government the differences in coronavirus between different countries but we will we'll get back on track here and say that what United States and the United Kingdom have not done done too well so he asks who was to blame for the fact that the two biggest English-speaking countries handled the first wave of COVID-19 so much worse than their Asian and European peers? For most journalists, the answer was blindingly obvious. The two populist leaders, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, Neither can be said to have handled the crisis ably, to put it mildly, but to turn the story of COVID-19 into a morality play, the populist's nemesis, is to miss the more profound systemic and societal failure that occurred in a way that future historians will surely see as facile. As Ferguson goes on to say, it wasn't the Prime Minister who works out how to respond to a, pat, a deadly pandemic. Those responsibilities are very much uh, require certainly some political leadership to get through a crisis, but, but um, it's very much reliant on the quality of the public health bureaucracy. The chief medical officer, the leading academic experts, the key modelers, the experts on the various committees, the, the officials organising all manner of things. And the story Ferguson tells is that first the experts divvied and then they panicked and then they, in their panic, they imposed blunt overreactive responses that were not terribly effective were perhaps too 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 much too late and had a, a dramatic impact 
Now, we could have a whole extra podcast around the coronavirus, but the, the real relevance for here is it is the quality of those governing institutions such as the public health bureaucracy that was found wanting at this crucial time. It was their moment in the sun and at least in many countries, uh, perhaps also in the international organisations, they did many things well but other things poorly and some of those poor things point to some some systemic failures, to use Ferguson's word, or political decay, to use uh, my word. And it is no small thing to have a problem in the public health bureaucracy. This is not some little add-on to to government. This is totally at the core, the core of what governments have done for centuries. The story of public health very much tends to have this sort of uh, account going back to John Snow in 19th century uh, London identifying the source of cholera with a tap and some good statistics. But public health has been uh, a, an aspect of governor of governing institutions long before that kind of approach to things, and is very much at the heart of organising collective responses and uh, in, in to, to social challenges. So it's quite troubling that our political institutions in the interaction with public health have not totally failed, at least been sorely tested and exposed some real weaknesses in, in how they go about things. And I don't particularly mean to focus alone on public health because it's apparent across other areas as well. Let's just take, for example, the in Australia, the Banking Royal Commission highlighted a systemic weaknesses of the regulators in government and I guess by extension the political direction of those regulating uh, instit- regulatory institutions such as ASIC in controlling and monitoring the banks and merely doing the job of enforcing the law. So political decay has real-world consequences. There are signs of it everywhere and it will be a constant theme, I guess, of this podcast. Now, really what I've tried to do today is just introduce the idea of uh, political decay and to wrap it up in a little bit of a um, you know topical story related to Neil Ferguson's book about doom and just to to highlight how what can seem quite abstract concepts such as political decay, um, you know, parliamentary institutions and the quality of government, um, it can be really hard to put your finger on it. But it is of serious consequence if we let those kind of institutions weaken to the extent that they cannot do the kind of a demanding job that we ask them to do in a crisis. And 
over the next uh, two episodes in this little trilogy, I'm going to focus also. Uh, I'm going to focus on two bulwarks against political decay, and they are good institutions, strong institutions, and and the other bulwark against decay is, if you like, culture or let's call it the ordinary virtues. So institutions, I guess, describe more formal arrangements, legal, well-established arrangements that we have to actually uh, structure what we do in our societies, the rules of a bureaucracy and how it operates form an institution. So that's one bulwark, but the other bulwark is what's in the hearts and minds of the people in those institutions the the leaders but also the ordinary you know middle lowly undercastellan type officials such as myself uh, and how can they practice the ordinary virtues of governing well so that's what the next two episodes uh, in this podcast talking about political decay will cover and That's the end of the podcast number five, Doom, Disaster and Decay. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it Uh, and I hope it hasn't been too sort of abstract. I know at times I should just reiterate again, I'm talking about my own personal views and I'm not making any commentary on any particular government or anything like that. So, so no controversy there. And, and I will just sign out by saying thanks to all those who've left uh, feedback and ratings and reviews. I know last week there was a degree of comedy, com- uh, comedy about how I can say hegemony, but there we go. And uh, you can check out my writings more at uh, www.theburningarchive.com. Uh, that's where I have my blog, uh, and I also put links there to all the episodes of the podcast and write about all sorts of uh, things. And there's be some interesting news coming shortly on that podcast as well about further connections and uh, some other projects that uh, I've been working on and uh, until next week that's all from me Jeff Rich and thanks for listening to the Burning Archive the podcast where the past isn't dead the past is not even past And by thinking about the past, we learn how to act better in the present. Okay, ciao to next time.